Russia attacks Ukraine. Putin has a kind of achieved the exact opposite of what he wanted in, in Western Europe in that the EU and NATO have completely, you know, hardened up and come together, unified. You know, the Germans quite remarkably are supplying weapons to the Ukraine. Policing and AI. I don't think that the ethical framework is sufficient. A really good example of the problem is to remember that it was actually launched at a time that the government was still backing robo-debt. An Australian DARPA. We're now in a situation in Australia whereby we will have neither a qualitative nor a quantitative advantage over regional adversaries, and so we need to do something different. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Russia continues its assault on Ukraine despite widespread international condemnation, including a vote by 141 member states of the UN condemning the invasion. Michael Shubridge and Dr. Marcus Hellyer explore how Russia's attack has intensified, Ukraine's long-term warfighting capability, and the potential off-ramps for this conflict. Well, Marcus, Putin's war in Ukraine, there's an awful lot lot of commentary and analysis. A lot of it is trying to follow the moment-by-moment actions in Ukraine itself, which are horrific. We see the widening use of indiscriminate weapons by Russian forces and what looks like an impending military assaults on urban centres and the horrific nature of urban warfighting, we understand well from experiences like Grozny. So there'll be more horrific deaths and killing in Ukraine. But the, the bigger picture starts to become clear with the international reaction too. The UN General Assembly vote, 141 countries condemning Russia's war and calling on Russia to immediately withdraw. Only five are votes against and 34 or 35 abstentions. So there's a lot of international unity condemning Russia and I suppose much more striking resolute action from democratic powers across the world. But what's the future look like for Putin even if he subjugates the 44 million people of Ukraine? Hmm. Well, there's an awful lot to process here. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The invasion only started a week ago, you know, and it seems like so much has happened in a week. Interestingly, on the ground, the, the Russians have only made very, very slow progress. Yet internationally, so much has changed. I mean, almost yeah. overnight, Western Europe hardened up. You know, the Germans who have been saying for a decade they really should be spending 2% of GDP on defence but haven't come close have now come out and said we're really going to do it. Putin has a kind of achieved the exact opposite of what he wanted in, in Western Europe in that the EU and NATO have completely, you know, hardened up and come together, unified. You know, the Germans quite remarkably are supplying weapons to the Ukraine. So a lot has changed really quickly and, and it's kind of a lot to process. But looking forward, you, you often say there's, you know, there's a lot of futures and it's hard to predict. Mm. I can only see a really bad future in Ukraine in the sort of short to medium term. And I think a lot of that is driven by lack of 
off-ramps here. The off-ramp for Ukraine is essentially unconditional surrender. Well, I don't see that happening anytime soon. The the off-ramp from the Russian side is for Putin to accept he made a terrible mistake and for him to back down. Well, I don't see that happening either. So I'm not sure what the sort of short to medium term solution is Ooh. that spares us a increasingly brutal war that is going to be accompanied by increasing radicalization on both on both sides. sides yeah from the sort of material and logistics side it is fascinating isn't it when you think that putin probably thought he was going to have a quick victory and now his troops are making 5 kilometers a day crawling in a very vulnerable convoy if the ukrainians had more air power but the ukrainians probably will be running short of material themselves despite supplies from NATO through Poland. But when it comes to the kind of struggle that we're talking about, we've seen invention in conflicts like Afghanistan and Iraq. The Russians should remember this. IEDs came to prominence in Afghanistan. They can be incredibly destructive and they can be made with things that are in domestic households and things that are captured from Russian troops. So the future of this war could uh, get extremely violent in ways that we've seen in other recent conflicts. Well, I think that's exactly right. There's, there's no shortage of weapons in Ukraine and there's no shortage of explosives in Ukraine. So every Russian tank that is captured or runs out of fuel, you know, there's 50 potential IEDs available to the Ukrainians. So they seem to be putting all of the javelins and other weapons that are being supplied by Western countries to to good use. But when you look at the Russian order of battle, it has literally tens of thousands of armoured vehicles left over from Cold War days. So, you know, Putin can keep throwing stuff at this for a long time to come. And, yeah, so if, if they run out of javelins, there's plenty of Molotov cocktails, plenty of IEDs that they can they can use. And we can already see that the Ukrainians seem to be deliberately targeting sort of the softer logistics train of the Russians. So, you know, it's pretty clear what, what they want to be doing. So they're going to hunker down in the cities and then try and pick off the Russians' kind of logistics System, Which, when it's your home territory, is your strength in conflicts like this. And again, back to pre-coalition conflict in Afghan days, the Americans and others supplied the Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan across the border from Pakistan. Uh, So those supply lines from NATO countries to Ukrainian forces, whether they're formal forces or insurgent forces, if Putin manages to occupy Ukraine, that's going to be part of the future too. And that's why this is a much more divided world that Putin has created. My view is he's going to go down for changing the course of history, but in an entirely different way to the one he expected. Mm -hmm. He has managed to do what democratic powers couldn't do themselves, which Mm -hmm. is unite them. Correct. I mean, I think the looking at the best possible future and you know the the alternative to that long grinding increasingly brutal insurgency that we seem to be looking at i think the only sort of 
alternative to that is some kind of inner circle <laughs> regime change in Russia itself, where Putin's inner circle decide that the cost of supporting him is too great and they somehow remove him. At the moment, we're, we're not seeing really any meaningful signs of that other than a couple of oligarchs sort of going, hmm, this probably wasn't a good thing to do. So, you know, I think that's a long way away as well. So, again, Well, I, I mean... Regimes like Putin's look really strong and inevitably in power until they break. That's the history of autocrats, that from the outside it's hard to predict the fragility, but it's there. And the kind of pressures on Putin and his inner circle are much more intense than he expected. There'll be domestic financial and public crises because casualties are coming back to Russia. Putin hasn't prepared his people for that. He hasn't prepared them for the speed and scale of international sanctions. And then the natural anxiety and fear in people close to a leader like Putin that they're not seen as on his team and they find themselves purged, poisoned or dead. So there's a lot of brittleness at times like this. So looking at him projecting strength. I think we've got to look a little bit beyond that. The other thing sort of I've been quite concerned about looking forward is the lessons for countries around the world on nuclear weapons. And I think many countries looking at this would go, hmm, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons on the assumption, you know, other countries would, you know, guarantee its security. Well, that hasn't happened. On the flip side, if you're sort of one of the potential bad guys, you know, looking at that 50 kilometre long column of stalled vehicles stretching back from the outskirts of Kiev to Belarus, the only thing that is really stopping NATO air power destroy that at the moment is the risk that it'll provoke a nuclear war with Russia. Mm. So good guys and bad guys are, are looking at this going, there's a lot of benefits to having nuclear weapons. And so it's sending some really, really bad proliferation messages to the world, I think. Well, it is indeed, but it's also a reminder of the actual deterrent power of nuclear weapons. And in our region, that matters when it comes to a place like Taiwan. One fascinating thing I don't think there's enough analysis around is the way Beijing is supporting and protecting Putin in this war. They didn't vote against the UN resolution. They abstained, as everyone expected they would. But we need to look behind the curtain and see the material and financial assistance and the political assistance in encouraging others to be confused and not take clear positions. That's a really big strategic fact here. But I, I know we're almost out of time. I was struck by your observation about what's happened in a week. Uh, so instead of a rapid military victory and a change of regime in Ukraine, which is what Putin expected, and a slow, confused response from the democratic world, it's been the land of opposites, hasn't it? There's been a, an extremely rapid, broad and deep response from the democratic world joined by the bulk of the international community, and Putin has bogged himself down in a war he's miscalculated. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's been an incredibly fascinating week, kind of exhausting. You know, it is very hard to avoid sort of getting drawn into watching all of the internet footage and tracking all of these events. So I'm kind of exhausted. So, you, I mean, you have to hand it to President Zelensky, who is, you know, kind of leading his country, you know, solidifying the opposition, but also rallying the world in support of him. I mean, that guy's energy, his endurance, I mean, it's Ooh. incredibly inspiring, I find, to, to watch him. Well, he is doing exactly what great leaders have done before. He's asking nothing of his people he's not willing to do himself. I've just given credit to Vladimir Putin for unifying the democratic world, but we need to give perhaps as much or more credit to President Zelensky and in a positive way. Yeah, I mean, for a, a you know, grumpy old strategist and you know, bitter old cynic, you know, I don't use the, the word hero very lightly, but it's, it's pretty hard to regard him in any other way, I think, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a bigger question, isn't it? Uh, what other support can the democratic world uh, supply to him and to the people of Ukraine? Thanks very much, Marcus. Thank you, Michael. As technology and AI continue to develop, they have become increasingly useful tools in policing efforts. Dr. Tegan Westendorf speaks to Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses about the ethics of AI in policing. They explore various ethical frameworks, oversight measures, and consider the notion of undemocratic AI. Lyria, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, Tegan. Excellent. Now I've got three big questions to chat to you today about, and I'm going to run straight into it with the first one being about tech limitations of AI and federal government policy. So with the enabling policy frameworks for artificial intelligence use in public and private sectors being currently established, I think now is really the time to assess the ethical implications and particularly the democratic legitimacy and indeed even the operational efficacy of using AI in the public sector and regulate its development and use accordingly. Now, policing sits really at the pointy end of this need, given the particularly negative impacts that incorrect or biased decision-making by AI about law enforcement could have on prospective perpetrators and victims' lives and safety. Do you think that the current high-level government policy documents regarding AI use revolutionising life as we know it, and I'm looking at the Department of Industry's AI Action Plan and Voluntary Ethics Framework, do you think they demonstrate or communicate a really sufficient understanding of the ethical and efficacy limitations of current algorithms available and the possible implications that those can have in terms of regulation that doesn't exist yet? Um, excellent question. Thank you, Tegan. I don't think that the ethical framework is sufficient. A really good example of the problem is to remember that it was actually launched at a time that the government was still backing robo-debt. So there's a real confusion around what even counts as the thing that has to be ethical, right? Is it everything? Is it all uses of automated systems? Is it only if we're using fancy machine learning techniques and so it comes within some kind of technical understanding of artificial intelligence? It, it's not completely clear. But even more broadly than that, I would be fascinated to know if any government programs in law enforcement or otherwise have been shut down or changed as a result of current policy. 
So we know data is being used, for example, in managing pre-crime for youth potential offenders in New South Wales. And we know Queensland's exploring predictive policing in the context of domestic violence. But when you look at those programs in practice and then you look at the ethical principles, it's pretty clear that the programs aren't always taking those ethical principles into account. Possibly because, as in the robo-debt case, it's simply not considered in scope. See, here's another way of thinking about it. It's very easy to come up with, you know, positive statements. We want systems to be fair, transparent, accountable, but much harder to make those kinds of things real. High-level ethical principles are nice, but they don't really help if that's all we're doing. And we need to ask a different kind of question, not just what ethically ought we do, but rather are laws and systems set up to ensure that programs operate in line with the high-level principles we want them to. So if we want accountability, as an example, we have to ask, are we empowering oversight agencies financially in terms of statutory powers to interrogate compliance with ethical principles and give them the ability to recommend or demand changes to the way programs operate? Thank you so much. That's a really interesting segue into my next question, which is about these kind of net benefit justifications for AI, which I still think is one of the defences that is argued for the robo-debt fiasco. So taking this into some of the examples that you've mentioned about policing scenarios, AI is, is incredible because it promises solutions to law enforcement in terms of justice outcomes. So, for example, risk assessment of recidivism, like you mentioned, and we've seen this in the states used to inform parole decisions or to prompt preemptive and deterrent police visits to offenders' homes, which is what's happening with the Queensland trial regarding domestic violence. Now, this is just some of many uses that we're seeing considered and and trialled for in policing, among them public safety video and image analysis using facial recognition to identify people of interest or to decipher low-quality images using systematically degraded images that AI can scan against, and then also forensic DNA testing. So we know there are greater and lesser problems of biased algorithmic insights or decisions in these different scenarios. In the risk assessment scenario regarding parole eligibility in the US, I mean, this is a great example of huge problems with the algorithm evidenced as significantly racially biased and incorrect a whopping 75% of the time. Now, the Queensland example currently in trial presents a much lower risk, I'd argue, but I'm not going to argue no risk, where subjects are screened for being high risk of high harm offences. Though to even be screened, they've already been pre-screened by humans as being part of a cohort that is already known significantly to police because of repeated interaction because of offences. So my question is, what do you think of this net benefit argument and would it be possible or defensible in terms of these high-level ethical principles and democratic legitimacy within that to factor this kind of weighting of pros and cons into regulation of AI use by law enforcement? In a nutshell, can you make a benefit that outweighs an inevitable or possible harm? So I've got nothing against net benefit, and it's certainly an important question to ask in the context of the programs you discuss, such as the Queensland trial. But I think we need to go back and think about the kinds of questions that the ethical principles at least pretend to demand. 
So you can say, okay, it has a net benefit. We want to do something like this. But you can still ask the next question, like what is being put in place to ensure that this program operates accountably? Can people challenge or appeal being added to the list? Can people challenge or appeal other people not being on the list? In other words, are decisions that the system makes contestable? Is there a way of doing that? Is the program as a whole transparent? What information is being provided to the public about how it works? Are we measuring things like the any increased impact on minority populations? If those measurements are being done so that, for example, there might be a disparate impact on certain communities, are they being reported and publicly reported so that we can consider that as against the benefits of the program? Or is all the benefit harm analysis being done behind closed doors and without sufficient evidence? In other words, I think net benefit's important, but it isn't the only question. And if we are serious about accountability, fairness, transparency, and all of the other ethical principles, we should be able to make sure that they happen even for programs that otherwise have a net benefit. Those are such important questions, and I I really agree with you there. So I'll move on to my third question regarding AI-specific law. Now, there's currently limitations on transparency and explainability of AI algorithms in terms of tech limitations. And there's also limitations in terms of them being proprietary products in many instances, such as the Compass program that was used in our example of the US court screening for parole. This has significant potential for ethical problems in various scenarios from HR, and I'd say that's about fairness, to democratic legitimacy in terms of law enforcement scenarios. Now, I've got two questions here. First, do you think the federal government AI ethics framework, which includes eight principles designed to ensure, and I'm quoting, AI is safe, secure and reliable, unquote, should be voluntary as it currently is, or to achieve that goal Do these principles really need to be legally enforceable via Australian laws that are developed specifically to address AI use by, for example, the public sector? Okay, so I'll start on that one. I absolutely think we should look at our laws to see if systems are in place to deliver on the kinds of commitments we might make in terms of ethical principles. But that's not the same thing as cutting and pasting ethical principles into laws or indeed saying that those laws have to specifically address artificial intelligence. To to give an example, you don't pass a law saying people responsible for the development of different phases of the AI system lifecycle should be identifiable and accountable for the outcomes of the AI systems. You consider what that requires and you have laws that, for example, set up oversight agencies that are empowered to question technologies that are otherwise secret, say in the law enforcement scenario because of operational secrecy, and you say that's our mechanism for ensuring the accountability. Similarly, you don't have a law saying AI systems should respect and uphold privacy rights and data protections. You look at the Privacy Act and ask whether it meets the needs of data subjects who may be subject to AI-informed decision-making, as it is sometimes called. That doesn't mean making the Privacy Act about AI, but it does mean looking at new data practices and ensuring that what the Privacy Act permits and prohibits is in line with our expectations and that we don't allow new practices, if you like, to get around the kinds of protections that people might otherwise expect. Mm -hmm. I might 
ask one final question, and perhaps this is drawing on these kind of new protections and new types of AI and whether laws can be sufficiently adaptable to the new ways that it's being considered in a law enforcement scenario. What do you think of the European Union's GDPR that draws the line on what I would probably loosely call undemocratic AI use, specifically one-to-many facial recognition technology, in exceptional security scenarios, which it classes as active terror threats and child exploitation? And I guess I'm comparing this to Australia's current trial of matching CCTV crime stills to national databases of government photo ID and that this is deemed justified for crimes that could earn more than three years of prison time. That looks to me like a different line of what's an exceptional circumstance justifying these kind of exceptional uses. So just a side note first, I suppose, I mean, the GDPR has been described as the best data protection law for the 20th century. So it's better than what we have in Australia, but it's not necessarily how I think we should be developing law that we need to manage 21st century data practices. Now, the use of things like photo matching in the context of, you know, exceptional security scenarios is really interesting and it raises lots of different issues. And so much depends on context. So for example, mass scanning and cross-checking to say identify everybody who's at a particular place at a particular time is quite different and raises very different risks to -to one-to-one matching. Is this person's face the same as this other person's face? So tracking everyone at a protest would be, I think, a particularly concerning activity. But even in one-to-one matching, there are concerns. There's a false positive risk and what the consequence of being a false positive might be. There's the fact that these technologies tend to be better at managing lighter rather than darker skin tones. There's a tendency in law enforcement, potentially at least, to overestimate the capabilities of the technology and over-rely on identified matches. But there's so much here that's context dependent. So to answer the question of what's appropriate, I do think it needs a lot of you know, very focused law development. And this is really what Edward Santo was calling for as Human Rights Commissioner, the fact that we need to think through our legal framework for things like facial recognition technologies rather than just going ahead. Thank you so much, Lyria. Finally, Aspie's Dr. Marcus Hellier speaks with Graham Dunk about the potential for an Australian Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. They discuss how DARPA would support defence innovation and the delivery of military capability in Australia. Well, hello, everybody. Today I'm talking with Graham Dunk, who is an old hand in defence and the defence industry space, currently working for Shoal Group, but long history in defence and defence industry, former ASW warfare officer. So he actually, unlike me, has real skills and talent in this space. So Graham's very kindly agreed to come in and to talk about some of the things going on in defence industry and defence science and and just sort of talk about some of the more interesting things that are occurring in this space. And the first thing I want to ask Graham about is this idea of an OSDARPA, you know, so everybody's getting really frustrated with the slow pace of innovation in defence. They look to the the gold standard, which is the US Department of Defence's DARPA, and it's been proposed by a number of people, including ASPE's Executive Director Peter Jennings, that maybe this is a model for Australia to follow. So what do you think, Graham? Well, firstly, thanks for having me here, Marcus. James Kruger and I have written a couple of articles for ASPE on an Australian DARPA, 
I guess the first thing to say is the concept is important, not necessarily the structure in the US. So some people have focused on the structure won't translate into the Australian environment. That's probably true, but the concept will translate. So we've addressed this to address a number of needs that we see for the Australian community. One is there is definitely a valley of death in innovation projects in Australia between, say, technical readiness levels four and seven. Four is about, you know, you prove the concept, the Mm -hmm. prototype, and seven is you're sort of ready to go into real testing to prove the system that's Mm -hmm. been developed between four and seven. So we typically have done research well. We haven't done the the developmental part very well. And so that's the first point. And and the defence space is not unique in this. No, it certainly is not. So the second point is there's a bit of a cultural problem in Australian defence whereby Australian innovative products aren't taken up directly by defence. You sort of have to develop a product and then go and convince a prime that they need to include it in some other offering that they're making and then the defence department will look at it. That obviously has IP problems. It has cost implications. And so there are quite a number of companies that have developed a product and then sort of have been told, well, you need to go and convince some offshore prime that it's worthy of them their consideration. And then who, who and may actually we'll... be a competitor for the thing you're trying to No, definitely. To and, and I guess the other point, not directly related to the innovation, but on the assumption that your innovation is successful, the fact that it's not taken up here impacts on the ability to sell it elsewhere because one of the first questions you're asked as a business development person overseas is, is this, you know, in service with your with your own defence force? So, so, so what is it about the OSDARPA concept? You know, we're not going to get into the details too much. What are the key no. elements of the concept yeah. that would break out of this cycle? Yeah, we just need to sort of run through this bit. The third issue is that the innovation space in Australia looks backwards. It doesn't really look forward. And I say that because in order to get an innovation project up, it has to relate to a project that's already in the IIP. And those decisions for stuff in the IIP were taken some time ago. So defence's investment program. Yes. So in essence, it's looking backwards, not looking forwards. And the last one is we're now in a situation in Australia whereby we will have neither a qualitative nor a quantitative advantage over regional adversaries and so we need to do something different and so the OSDARPA is a way of quite deliberately looking at those asymmetric effects that we can bring to bear to address the problems that we have the issues the challenges that we will face in Australia for Australian operations and rather than relying on solutions that are developed elsewhere in essence that's that's what an OSDARPA will bring it will it will enable us to develop our own industry to develop our own solutions, to create asymmetric operational effects that we need. And and would that sit inside defence or outside defence? Uh, that good. tends to be one of no, the no, sticking no, points. No, a good, good question. Uh, our view is that it needs to be outside of defence because if it's inside defence, the cultural issues will rise to the fore and it will become quite risk-averse and, as I said before, the, the cultural aspects of not really wanting to to give credence to the innovation that's happened here. Well, and I'd we'll, say that we'll, that's also the view of us at Aspie is yeah. that defence is risk-averse culture. Yes. If it's inside defence, yeah. it's not going to get very far. Yeah. And so the other... You can always think of a reason to say no. No. And the other thing is that it it needs to be staffed with 
professional people who come in, a bit like the DARPA model where people come in for a, a deliberate tenure and then they move out rather than by public servants who are there, mm-hmm. you know, forever. Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned there was asymmetric effects. Now, potentially missiles could deliver mm-hmm. asymmetric effects. And yep. so one of the big things going on at the moment is the, you know, development of uh, Australia's sovereign guided weapons enterprise, you know, our missile manufacturing enterprise announced by the government, sort of foreshadowed in the 2020 Defence Strategic Update. Then in March of last year, they announced they were going to do it. My sense was it totally took Defence by surprise and Defence is scrambling around now trying to work out how it's actually going to work. Hasn't been much in the way of announcements since then, nearly a year on. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of where is the missile enterprise at? Where's the government at? And what sorts of announcements do you think we should be expecting, if any? I don't think we'll be expecting too much. At Shoal, we made a submission to the guided weapon industry call for submissions anyway. Mm -hmm. We made one. Yeah, there was a request for information. And And so ours was basically there were four streams that, can and probably should run in parallel. One is you can go offshore and you can just buy it. So you can just stockpile it. And so, you know, you, you have a, a big cache of weapons, you fire them off, but then what do you do for resupply? So that's an issue. The second one is you can fabricate them here, but that still relies on the components being shipped. So you're not really going much further down the path. The third one is you actually create a domestic version of that missile by manufacturing all the parts in Australia. That could work, but there's a lot of test and evaluation that's required to make sure that the one that's developed here is actually performs the same as the, the so there's a lot of, you know, digital engineering and T&E and lots of firings and that sort of thing. But the other one is that we could potentially design and manufacture weapons here. Now, that's not to say that we'd be doing it for JSF and probably not even for surface ships because it's a big integration problem that has to happen. But we could potentially develop a land-based, you know, fire from the shore out to sea hypersonic weapon which doesn't have a huge integration problem and you put it on the back of a truck or you deploy it to some forward island or or whatever you happen to do and then you've got obviously networking and targeting issues but you don't have the system integration problems that you might have with JSF, for example. No, it's interesting you say that because I've sort of thought about, you know, what's the sweet spot for Australian industry? Yes, we'll probably build some missiles under license, some mm-hmm. US missiles, sure, but what can Australian industry really add? And I keep coming back to actually something like this, so a relatively simple mm-hmm. long-range hypersonic missile that we can produce in numbers and deploy mm-hmm. in numbers. And it doesn't actually have to be the world's most technically complex, you know, smartest weapon. The, the idea of asymmetric capabilities is you get the adversary's attention, okay, and shape their thinking. And to me, a hypersonic weapon launched off the back of a truck, a range of 2,000 kilometres, does get an adversary's attention if they want to come within 2,000 kilometres of Australia. So Yeah, hold the potential adversary at risk earlier is the catchphrase and that's what exactly what we'd be looking to do so yeah i'm really hopeful that you know in the 100 billion dollar enterprise which is the future guided weapons enterprise in australia that i'm hopeful there's room for different lines of activity here that it's not just build you know american weapons under license but there's room for that certainly but there is room also to invest heavily in australian innovation because you know 
as well as I do, that we actually have a lot of the building blocks here for a guided weapons industry. No, we do. And I think all those four streams that I talked about, I think they're all important. They all have a part to play. But if we're going to be firing off, hopefully we don't have to fire off anything. But if we get to the point where we have to fire, we're going to be firing lots and lots of these things. And if we can design them, develop them, upgrade them, build them in Australia, simple, long range, hold the adversary at risk earlier, then we're doing really positive things for Australia's security. All right. Thank you, Graham. There's so many other things I'd like to talk to you about. You know, great to talk a bit about shipbuilding. Maybe in the future you can come back. But yeah, I'd love for, to. But today we've run out of time, so um, we'll have to wrap it up. But thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, Marcus. Pleasure. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Michael Shoebridge, Director of Defence, Strategy and National Security at ASPE, and Dr. Marcus Hellyer, Senior ASPE Analyst. Dr. Tegan Westendorf, Analyst with ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, and Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses, Director of the Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation, and a Professor in the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW Sydney, and Graham Dunk, Head of Strategy at Shoal Group. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.